right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Remember, go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. That should be your, I don't know, that that is your starting point for a better life. Boy, that is, that's that's kind of a. That's kind of big, isn't it? All right. We've got a great panel. We're going to be talking a little bit about basketball. We're going to talk about a little shoulder stuff. And we've got uh, uh, Kelly. I want to be able to sort of provide a little background into Kelly. Kelly, give us a little 411 on who you are. Yeah, uh, Kelly Jenkins. I am a physical therapist with Cora Physical Therapy. That was a big lead in for us. So hopefully we live up. Um, I'm originally from Rhode Island, went to college in Boston at Northeastern University, and then moved to the warm south of North Carolina, where I've been practicing for 29 years. 20. I can't do the math. 29 years. I'm old. Life, life has been good to you. I know I've been, I've been rode hard and put away wet. I mean, you, <laughs> fantastic. All right, Dr. Clay Nelson, give us a little background on who you are. So I'm Clay Nelson. I grew up in North Carolina, went to undergrad at UNC in Chapel Hill, uh, then went off to med school in uh, Norfolk, Virginia at Eastern Virginia Medical School. From there, went did residency in Campbell Clinic uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and then I did a year fellowship in sports me- medicine in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and then I started practice back in Rocky Mount about a year and a half ago. Um, and I came back to my hometown. And that's uh, how I know Kelly. We go back a long way. And How's UNC doing in the, the basketball this year? Uh, they're, they're, they're all over the place. But, I mean, it's kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. All right, Dr. Rick, in the fluffy chair, take it away. They're all yours. First of all, I want to thank everybody for tonight's uh, podcast. Really good podcast, great topic, and something we see pretty commonly as sports doctors. So just for a little bit of context, um, 1.6 million basketball injuries a year, that's a lot, and 22% at kind of moderate to mid-level result in missed man games. So my practice, we do D1, some professional kids, and, and it's a problem. And tonight we're going to talk about pediatric and adolescent shoulder injuries, a la basketball injuries. And I think to start out, uh, just for some context, tell us what are the most common basketball injuries you see as overhead athletes and in terms of percentages in your practice, how common is it? Um, For me, you know, I think basketball injuries uh, for in terms of overhead athlete type injuries, uh, specifically for the shoulder, I think I see a lot of, you know, kind of tendonitis type issues, um, impingement type issues, but then occasionally the, the shoulder dislocations and things like that that come in. Um, and I, I mean, being new to practice, I haven't seen a ton of basketball shoulder injuries compared to, you know, probably more common ankle injuries and, and knee injuries, but 
I do think that the shoulder injuries are out there and, and, and are important to address. Um, so th that's probably what I see the most are just, you know, overuse injuries, but then, you know, the occasional dislocations. So tell us about your overuse injuries. I mean, you talked a little bit about impingement, uh, some tendonitis. So what are you going to see in a pediatric or an adolescent population? Are you seeing overuse growth plate or are you seeing more uh, mechanical impingement? Kind of, kind of give us your thoughts on that just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not nearly as much as you see for like baseball players and, you know, volleyball players that are constantly, you know, where you see these little leaguers that have been pitching, you know, too many innings, but I do think, you know, basketball players can, can get similar type issues from, from, if they're playing too much and get, you know, overuse and probably not as many, I at least haven't seen a lot of growth play injuries from basketball players, but I'm sure that that's a thing. And, and then you get the, you know, traumatic things like dislocations. And in terms of dislocations, let's kind of delve into that just a little bit. If you think about it, the biomechanics would lend itself to dislocating your shoulder kind of in an abducted externally rotated position for anterior instability Kind of tell us, give, give us your thoughts on shoulder instability, subluxation versus dislocation. And then, and then I want to kind of get into the examination just a little bit. So kind of, kind of differentiate gross instability and maybe, maybe some uh, micro trauma and, and how you differentiate those. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for subluxation versus dislocation, I mean, the, you know, when a player dislocates their shoulder, I mean, it's, it makes it a little bit easier on us because they have, you know, uh, one event that happens that, you know, where the shoulder dislocates and then often has to get either reduced in the locker room or, or in the emergency room, the subluxation events are a little bit more tricky, but, but they're equally out there and, and sometimes harder to pick up on. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of basketball players, you know, there was a study recently uh, on all shoulder dislocation events and basketball is one of the most common sporting events that, that will cause a traumatic dislocation, which, you know, you always think about, you know, football players and, and, and more high energy stuff, but, but in basketball, especially like rebounding and occasionally shooting, you can have the dislocation events occur there. And do you think most of those instability patterns are in anterior? Do you think they're multidirectional kids are a little younger or are they posterior kind of, what are your thoughts on, on, direction and, and uh, possible multi-direction? Yeah, I think, you know, for, for the older athlete or the, the trauma, traumatic the traumatic injury, I think the anterior instability is probably more common. You probably, I, at least I don't see a lot of as much posterior labral problems in basketball players compared to, you know, like linemen and things like that where, where you see that a lot. Um, but then you have, you know, the younger kids that, that are just – have multi-directional instability and just have a, more laxity than, and, and as they grow up, you know, a lot of, sometimes that gets better or, or we get them into therapy and that can definitely help them. I think, again, from a traumatic standpoint, it's probably more anterior, but there's definitely a lot of the multi-directional stuff too. And, and so um, before we talk about, we're about to talk about rehab in a second, but give us your workup. Um, Female, male comes in, gives you a history of whatever, gross instability, multiple subluxations. 
Um, give us, give us your thoughts, give us your physical exam, give us what x-rays we need to take and then kind of walk us through the MRI. Um, kind of, where do you go from there? What's the work? Yeah. Like? Yeah. So I think the biggest, or at least for me, one of the biggest things is just the history, you know, you know, what, what's been going on, what have they been experiencing? Uh, if they, if they have gross instability, you know, I think an important thing is how it happened the first time. Um, and then kind of with each subsequent dislocation, you know, what, what's causing them to dislocate, I think is really important. Um, and then number of times that they've dislocated is really important. Um, just to kind of get a gauge of what are we expecting to find with the exam and then with the imaging studies, I think a lot of times you can get a good sense of what your plan's going to be just based off of what's been going on. Uh, you know, if it's a first time dislocator, you, you know, you kind of have an idea of what you expect to find on x-ray and, and MRI. And, and as they get more subsequent dislocations, then we're expecting to find, you know, more, more things on, you know, more findings on the MRI, more bone loss. And so I think the history is probably one of the most important things to, to get out of it is just, you know, what's been going on with them and, and kind of how it's progressed, you know, since it started. Um, you know, for, for all of them, we're going to get your, your basic x-rays. We want to get a good AP of the shoulder, a scapular Y view, and I always get axillary views. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, if we, if we want to get more imaging, you can get, you know, like the striker view to look for a hill sacks lesion, West Point view to kind of look a little bit better at the glenoid rim. Um, and so it's hard to get great x-rays sometimes depending on, you know, who your x-ray techs are. Um, but I think, you know, if you can get a good AP of the shoulder and an axillary view, you're going to, you're going to be able to see a lot. And then based off the history and the exam, you're going to determine whether you want to go ahead and get an MRI. Um, in terms of my exam, you know, just depending on how far they are, they are out from the injury makes a lot of difference. You know, if they've dislocated, you know, a couple of days ago, I think the exam's a lot harder because they're guarded and, and they're not going to let you do all that much with the shoulder, but, you know, if they've had several dislocation events and they're just coming in to kind of get a game plan on what to do with their shoulder, then I think you can get more, um, more out of the exam. You know, if it's been just a few days since the dislocation, I think it's a lot harder because they're, they're going to be pretty sore and it's, it's going to be hard to kind of know how unstable their shoulder is. Um, but once they get out of that initial period, um, you know, making sure, kind of checking their range of motion, checking, checking their strength, and then going through, you know, see how apprehensive they are with their arm abducted and externally rotated and seeing how far they translate, you know, their humerus onto their glenoid, whether they go over the glenoid rim, whether they get locked, you know, if they're super unstable. Um, and then if you're thinking based off the history that maybe it's not just anterior instability, you know, checking for for how, um, you know, just in general, how lax they are um, by checking some of their other joints is, a, is always a good plan. Um, I think that's kind of my thought. And then in terms of MRI, it really depends on kind of what, what the exam and what the, um, what the history is. But, you know, if it's a, if it's a high level athlete and, you know, Definitely if they've had more than one dislocation, but a lot of times after their first dislocation, depending on what the conversation is with the patient and the family, 
a lot of times I will get an MRI just to kind of assess, you know, the labrum and, the, and, and what else is going on in their shoulder. And so you kind of brought up a really important point, especially, especially in this patient population. So when we're talking about different grades of, of, of instability, obviously the shoulder is one joint and, and we look for other uh, components of instability, joint instability. Walk us through that a little bit. Talk, talk about, um, you know, what other joints are involved, hyperextension of the elbow, hyperextension of the thumb, and, and, you know, what the therapist can look for to say, you know what, this, this, this guy's actually got uh, more than just an unstable shoulder. There just seems to be a, a, a generalized laxity. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think about that checking for hyper, yeah, hyperextension of the elbow, hyperextension at the knee, um, you know, whether they can bend down and touch their palm to the floor and take it there can hyperextend at that, that their digits. I think all those are, are pretty easy things that you can look for in terms of the shoulder, you know, checking for a sulcus sign is a, is a relatively straightforward thing to look for. And I think that when, when those start, you get, you know, more than, you know, four, four of those being positive, I think you have to think more of a, you know, this is likely a multi-directional thing as opposed to just a traumatic injury. And, and, and moving, moving right along here in terms of, of treatment, you make your diagnosis, patient's a first-time dislocator, um, and, and you get your MRI, maybe there's no bone loss, small hill sacs, non-engaging lesion. Um, what do you do? I mean, now what do you do? Yeah, I think the further we get along, you know, I think more research is showing that, you know, you can make a good argument of if this is a, a athlete that's going to play contact sports that you can, you know, it is a reasonable thing to do is to go ahead and fix those patients. Um, I'm a little bit more conservative, you know, depending on what sport they play. Um, it's hard to convince people sometime after one dislocation that they need to have surgery. But I think for sure after two, it's definitely a, a, a reasonable thing to do. But I mean, if you look at a lot of studies, I mean, especially uh, some of the NBA studies out there, I mean, the patients that get fixed usually do end up doing better and have a much more productive season after they get fixed as opposed to patients that um, are treated conservatively. And there's, for those athletes, I mean, there's a 40% risk of having a, you know, recurrent dislocation event and then you know, when you start talking about more dislocation events, then you got to start thinking, well, you know, is there more bone loss now because we waited and you start having to have that conversation. So I think it depends on the athlete and the family and kind of where they are in their life and what their thoughts are and where they see their future going uh, on whether you need to fix them the first time. Um, uh, there are probably more people more aggressive about doing it than I am, but um, I think you can make a good argument to do it. Um, and, I, and I always do give patients that option after a first-time dislocation, um, but certainly after they start getting more than one, then I think, you know, fixing these is probably the right answer. So Kelly, um, Dr. Nelson sends you a patient. She's a 14-year-old swimmer, has a multi-directional instability, both shoulders a little lax. Um, maybe a little shoulder pain, but, but one certainly more problematic. How do we rehab that shoulder? Kind of walk us through the process of rehab and, and then we're going to kind of go on to the post-surgical patient, but let's talk about 
somebody who we're trying to treat conservatively for uh, maybe a labral tear and instability pattern and trying to avoid surgery. Yeah, if we're talking about just an excessive mobility and a laxity issue that there wasn't really any trauma, I don't have any acute tissue trauma to worry about and anything like that, then I'm just going to start working on getting dynamic stability first. And so first off, I want to make sure their proprioceptive awareness is good. Um, it's kind of like four phases for me. First, I want to do proprioceptive awareness, kinesthetic awareness, and then I'm going to work into muscular strengthening. Then I'm going to go into more neuromuscular dynamic stuff. And then I'm going to get into sport specific stuff. And I think if you skip a phase, you can kind of get stuck somewhere in that process. And so it's really important because I think a lot of it in younger athletes, like we were talking about, stems from a lot of just instability and just inherent looseness and weakness and laxity. And they don't have a lot of proprioceptive awareness. A lot of kids these days are sitting on video games, sitting on the couch. They might go out and play some ball, but they don't really have a whole lot of joint awareness. And so if you pass right into that or assume because someone is playing sports that they have good functional strength and control and you don't start there, then you can kind of set them up for failure. Um, so I'm going to work just in the fact of, okay, let me get your arm in somewhere in space, provided they're pain-free. Let me get you somewhere in space close your eyes. Can you reproduce that position? Can you take me back there? Do you have the control there? If so, I'm going to start working on some more dynamic stuff and some more maybe rhythmic stabilization, challenging them with some unstable surfaces and just functionally progressing them through there. That's awesome. So in, in terms of sports specific uh, rehab, especially let's say in a head thrower, swimmer, basketball player, Talk about the scapulothoracic joint and kind of core strength and, and how all that is intertwined. Yeah. Um, so if they don't have the core stability to anchor that scapula, we're in trouble. And sometimes it may be a matter of mobile, you know, needing mobilization. They might be really rigid through their thoracic spine and at that junction. And so they may need mobilization to loosen that up to allow things to move. So it's kind of just seeing everything through timing, making sure that they're not using compensatory shrugging. Um, overall, I think the population tends to be much more anterior dominant than posterior dominant. And so we need to work on a lot of posterior strengthening and scapular stabilization to anchor them. So I will challenge them there. I may put them prone on a physio ball and have them working doing, you know, some scapular stabilizing exercises, closed kinetic chain things, even though the arm most of the time is open chain, but they need to train closed chain to anchor that scapula to the core and to the trunk. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, the world has become so anterior, you know, back in the day when we were running around shooting buffaloes or carrying them through the woods or whatever we were doing, uh, there, there was certainly was more symmetry and now everyone's world is, you know, Fortnite and whatever call of duty and their phone. And, and I think we've become very, very, you know, cervical spines change, thoracic spines change, shoulders have changed. Everyone's protracted. I mean, it's just, it's just a whole different dynamic. So I think you're hundred percent correct. So Dr. Nelson, um, athlete comes in first time, second time dislocator, get an MRI, they're going to go back. They want to go back and play their junior. They want to go back and play college football or high school basketball or some more traumatic sport. It kind of walk us through the surgery. What, how, how are we going to fix the shoulder? What, now what do we do? 
Yeah. So, you know, if we're talking mostly anterior instability, you know, what we want to look at on the MRI is just, you know, what the condition of the labrum is. Is it just a labral injury or, you know, is there any bone loss um, on the anterior inferior glenoid? Um, and then how big is the hill sacs lesion? Um, I think those are all important, you know, points to bring up. Usually, you know, if it's a, a one or two time dislocator, they're not going to hopefully have a lot of bone loss. Um, and so if it's strictly just a, you know, a labral capsular injury, then, then what I would plan on doing is just fix, you know, fixing the labrum and doing a, you know, a capsular application. Um, how I do that is most everything I do for the shoulder is in the beach chair, but I do think for instability cases that, that it's, you get a much better repair if they're in the lateral position. Um, I do this all arthroscopic. Um, you can equally do it open, but there is some, um, data saying maybe they get a little bit more, um, mobilization early with, with doing this arthroscopically. Um, so I do it in the lateral position. Um, I think big on, on these is just to make sure you're getting your first anchor in a, in a very low position, you know, hopefully around the six o'clock on when you're looking at the glenoid, um, and getting a good, you know, capsule application, not just um, repairing the labrum and then at least getting three anchors in as, as I think a good, a good plan. Um, I use all um, suture anchors. Um, so I think as we get more technology, people are going to smaller anchors or all suture anchors. Um, and uh, that's what I would do if it's, if it's just, mostly a labral issue you know i'd plan on putting three or four anchors in and then um and that would be it now if you if you talk about bone loss i think it becomes a little bit more complicated on what you have to do um and i think there's a lot of differing opinions based off where you trained what part of the country you practice in and and kind of what your what your thoughts are but i think it you have to consider a lot more once you start getting more dislocations and more bone loss so, so, so tell us, tell us, is, is there any place in your armamentarium for remplissage? And, and if there is significant bone loss, maybe athletes a little older, a number of dislocations, what's your go-to procedure to address um, a 25% or 20% glenoid bone loss? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the remplissage. Um, so what that is, is where you put anchors, um, into the hill sacs lesion and, and you bring in the posterior capsule and some of the um, infraspinatus into the, into the defect. Rimplissage means to fill the cup. So you're essentially filling in the defect of the, of the hill sacs with, with soft tissue to hopefully prevent it from engaging um, along, you know, the course of its motion. Um, I think it's a, a, a very useful thing. Um, I use it anytime you, you start getting, you know, more than for so how i do it is typically so if i'm considering a remplissage usually what i'll do is i'll calculate the glenoid track and then um then i'll look at the hill sacs interval and determine whether it's an on or off track lesion so um so i'm going to look and see if there's bone loss um i'm going to subtract that bone loss from how big the glenoid is and then you calculate the glenoid track which is just essentially 83% of whatever that number is. And then you, you look at the hill sacs interval, which is where the defect is from the hill sacs to where um, the infraspinatus inserts. And, and you calculate that number. If the hill sacs lesion is bigger, 
than the glenoid track, then technically it would be called a, a off-track lesion, meaning that the the hill sacs can engage. And so if that's the case, then then I'll do a rim plissage. And so that's kind of how I do it. Um, I also will do it on somebody that, that's have several dislocations and even if they're kind of borderline, um, I'll, I'll probably add that in there if, I, if I'm really worried about them. Um, I think it, especially, you know, I get a little hesitant on some of the overhead act athletes in terms of, you know, like baseball players, throwers. I, I try to avoid it if I can, but I think, I think it's a good procedure and, and I think you can get back most of your range of motion with that procedure without having to take the risk of doing something like a, um, like a ladder J, which has a much higher complication rate, I think. Oh, so just, just to kind of clarify some of this, what we're talking about is, is, a, is, a, is a ridge in the back of the ball and bone loss in the front of the socket. And when the arm rotates, it's almost like running your truck into a gully. You know, it, it, it kind of, if it, if, it, if it engages, it's going to dislocate your shoulder. So what we're trying to do is stop the bone loss. And I think that was a perfect explanation. In the latter J, you're basically putting bone where there wasn't any bone to stop the shoulder um, from having a, a, a socket that's not deep enough. So you, you take this bone called the coracoid and you, you move it. And what you're trying to do is deepen the socket. So what, what is, someone comes in, they have a pretty straightforward capsular reconstruction with a, with a bank heart repair. Um, how long do you immobilize them for? And then when do you send them to Kelly? Yeah. So typically I'll, you know, I'll put them in the sling afterwards and I'll usually keep them in the sling pretty much full time for at least the first two weeks. Um, I'll let them come out and do some pendulums and some elbow range of motion, just some very gentle stuff for, if they're an athlete, I usually send them to therapy usually around the two to three week mark. Um, uh, I think getting them started with, with, you know, just working on scapular mechanics early, I think is really important. And I think, you know, you can try to explain it to the patient on how to do that, but I think they get much better outcomes uh, when they actually see therapists. I mean, I've definitely been told, you know, that people come in and they have just completely different idea of what you try to explain to them. And so I think having more of a guided therapy session as opposed to, you know, just trying to do some gentle stuff on their own is important, especially if they're, if they're competitive athletes and they're hoping to get back to sport, you know, sooner rather than later. I, I agree. So Kelly, take it away. So Dr. Nelson, um, two weeks, three weeks, athlete comes in, um, explain the rehab. Now, now, now what do we got to do? Um, a lot of education early on because they, all say, oh, I'm feeling okay, think they can get back to doing more than they should, educating them why the smaller things matter initially, do a lot of postural training and a lot of postural work, teaching them to retract and depress those scaps, learning that scapular control so they can start learning that proprioceptive feel of where it belongs in space, um, teaching them as we start going through some motion, um, just to early controlled pain-free motion, um, working on tissue spasm, any compensatory tightness. Usually there, if they've had trauma, there's going to be a lot of compensated tightness where they've been trying to, you know, regain some stability through their tissue because it's just an inherently unstable joint. So we'll work tissue wise, trigger point work, um, 
some stretching into the tissue, not as far as the joint. Um, I, I do some dry needling. I might not do that initially post-op, but um, some A-STEM to reduce tissue tightness, just instrument assisted. Um, then we'll progress in as their body allows us and as the healing allows us. I mean, I'm going to allow thinking about six to eight weeks for that labrum to heal down to the bone and trying to be kind of guarded is what I've always kind of thought. Um, and then I'm looking more towards progressing again, that same whole process of rhythmic stabilization, gaining their stability, gaining their control. It, I, I pretty much teach treat shoulders the same way, not mattering. It's just a matter of finding out where they are in the stage and gaining the control and the stability. Um, it can be simple weight-bearing things with their putting the hand onto the plinth, just leaning over it, learning to get some joint compression there to help learn that stability and not really gaining and grinding onto that rim, but just learning to joint approximate and then teaching them for that feeling. And then from there, okay, what are they doing with their scapula? What are they doing in their control? Teaching them more, okay, we got to depress it back down. Most times I find that people have no idea how to control and isolate their scapula. It takes forever and I can elevate and I can say, okay, you're doing this and you're shrugging up and I'll say, now drop that scapula down and they can't control it or isolate it at all. So learning that to me is so important and it's amazing to me how hard that is to teach, even in an athletic population. Oh, I agree with that. You, know, you, you see him come in in the office and you, you say, look in the mirror. I know the therapist, Kelly's told you to do this and still can't do it. You do any, you do any Australian taping or any kind of taping to try to con for proprioceptive feedback to try to kind of control their, uh, their scapulothoracic mechanics or, I do use KT tape, yes, for training. Um, I try to get them to do it more manually on their own. I use it more in people returning to sport or like even now I had a swimmer coming in. She's wanting to compete. It's her senior year. She's got some instability issues. I taped her prior to her meet, just trying to help her kinesthetically. But I don't do it a whole lot postoperatively because I try to get them to learn that awareness on their own. Um, Sometimes if I need to for a little bit of pain control, but I really don't use it a whole lot postoperatively. And, and, and Dr. Nelson, how, how do, is, is there any way to prevent this? Um, I mean, obviously with some of multi-directional instability, you know, ED3, whatever, Ehlers-Danlos, a little different issue, but is, is there anything we can do like the ACL? We're taught that if we take these proprioceptive steps, we can, we can prevent uh, some component of ACL injuries. Is there anything we can do in a high-level uh, adolescent basketball player who, like you said, is overtraining, we got a sports trainer, they're in two or three leagues, they're just going traveling, they're going crazy. How, how do we stop this from happening in the first place, or, or, or is it just going to happen? Yeah, I, don't, I, I haven't seen any studies specifically on this, but, I mean, if you, almost every young kid that I see has poor scapular mechanics, and, and I think – you know, you t they talk about doing ACL prevention. I mean, if you wanted to talk shoulder, you know, health, I think, you know, teaching kids better scapular mechanics would be key. And just, you know, just, you know, dynamic stability things, I think, would probably be helpful for everybody, not just athletes. But, I mean, I mean, how many people do you see in clinic that, that have problems with just impingement and, and their, their scapular mechanic? And they don't – they. They don't understand necessarily why their scapula plays a role in everything, but 
I mean, I think if people had better posturing, uh, then a lot of these problems wouldn't would never be uh, cause as significant of problems as they they, they do. No, I think that I think it, and, and and we do quite a bit of that. You know, post your shoulder strength and you get them in the weight room. You know, tell them about arm mechanics. When your arm's way out to the side, you're at risk, etc. And we've had some success with that. Um, and I think you're going to see some studies where you know, people have extrapolated the ACL um, prevention pro- programs. Uh, so, so a couple last questions. Is, is, is there any, do you see much nerve issues, one, and um, axillary nerve issues, et cetera, and, and number two, and maybe more importantly, do you think as these kids develop, so they're 12, 13, they have a little inherent shoulder instability, because there's always this question of, of are they going to tighten up as they get older? And I don't really see it, but do you think that there's some improvement as they get a little older? And number two, and I guess, and do you see many axillary nerve injuries in, the, in this patient population? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you in a couple of years when I get further out in practice, whether or not uh, this again. becomes less of a problem. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know the right answer. I mean, I think certainly these the patients that, that have, you know, that get into their thirties, they, they, you know, end up getting at some point, this becomes less of a problem. They start be having more issues with arthritis and they get stiff and, and then they have different types of problems at that point. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, the multidirectional certainly I think can get better with, with therapy, but I think a lot, you know, a lot of these kids that keep playing keep having issues with it. And, and I think, you know, that's why I think probably surgery, once you get past, you know, one or two times that, that fixing these often is, is probably the right answer. Cause I don't think they, they start, in, you know, having less instability until they're further along. And usually at that point, it's because they've started to have, you know, other issues with their shoulder. I think that's a really good point. And, 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 you know, everybody does tighten up. I don't think they tighten up as they get older. I think they tighten up as they get arthritic and that's the yeah, same right. thing on the knee. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then the axillary nerve, do you mean like, like from the dislocation from surgery? I don't, I don't, I don't really see too much from surgery, but every once in a while in, in an adult, you know, you'll have a 22, 23 year old D one football player. They'll dislocate. They'll have some lateral numbness. And certainly as you get older, you're 45 years old, you dislocate because maybe you got banged up or something and you fell down the stairs or whatever. But we see some axillary nerve injuries in that patient population. I, I just don't, don't see too much axillary nerve injuries in these multidirectional kids. And I just wonder if they're, they accommodate to being loose and the nerve just doesn't really get affected or maybe young kids just don't have nerve issues. But um, when you really look for axillary nerve and instability, it's, it's not that uncommon little numbness, maybe a little deltoid weakness, but in young kids, I just don't, I just normally don't see it. Um, and in the multi-directionals, I don't see it. I'm always looking for it because you think they're so loose that you, you think they would be tweaking their brachial plexus. I just, I just haven't seen it. Yeah. I, um, I've seen, you know, like right after, you know, some of the kids complaining about a little bit of numbness, but I mean, that seems to resolve pretty fast. I mean, I'm treating a lady right now who dislocated, she's in her thirties and she dislocated her shoulder and she's got a, a tuberosity fracture that's non-displaced, but she has a pretty not. It's it's pretty impressive. Her actually, her nerve is still. I mean, it's coming back, but I mean, she was not like pretty densely numb over there and had some, you know, 
some issues with that and it's it's coming along but i think as they get older it's definitely becomes more of a they more consistently have problems with it as as opposed to younger patients no i think that's right so um kelly what did we forget what should we have talked about that we didn't talk about um i just think one thing in regards to that is that Patients will rehab and they'll do better. And sometimes, you know, they're not a surgical candidate or they elect not to be and they don't go through surgery and they tighten up and they do pretty well. But my findings, no matter how hard I educate them and how much I try to tell them, it's funny, they think they've fixed themselves. And I try to teach someone that's inherently unstable. As long as you want to be doing something that's challenging that shoulder in an unstable position, you've got to maintain that control and that stability. It's not like, oh, good, I fixed myself and now I can't have the problem again. And it's amazing how many people I'll see again that are starting to have, I'm having some anterior impingement pain, I'm having some instability issue again. And why is my shoulder hurting? I thought I fixed this. Well, have you been doing your exercises? Because I said, if you still wanted to golf or you still wanted to play tennis, you were going to have to make sure because you are inherently unstable. And some people just don't get it. And then usually the second time they get it, I said, if not, you're going to come back and see me again. And that's fine. I'll take your money and treat you again. But I shouldn't have to see you again for the same problem. And so I think that's important for people to understand. I think that's a really good point. And I, and how many times you see somebody who comes in, you know, adolescent with PF pain, they get better and then they quit doing their exercises. And I think if we could, if we can impress that one thing, that it's like brushing your teeth, I tell them, you know, you don't brush them one time in a brush. You got to brush them every day. And, and that's how your exercises are. And I think if we can impart that knowledge, I think that's beneficial. Dr. Nelson, what did we miss? What, what, what should we have talked about? Um, I don't know. I guess what are y'all's opinions on, on bracing the athlete? You know, let's say a guy comes in with a, a dislocation and, and he wants to get through the season. Do you think bracing those like in a football player, do you think it matters? Do you do it or? Good question. I, I'm a big fan. So, you know, this is always the big issue. The big issue is they dislocate. They feel fine after they re they're relocated. They want to play. Coach wants them to play. And you know that they're going to re-dislocate young kid, high impact sport. And so we, we do put them in a brace, a sully or one of the braces. And you get two complaints. One complaint is they tell you they can't breathe because the brace is so tight, they can't expand their lungs. And then it, depending on the position, some of them complain that they can't really get their arm in an appropriate position. But I'm a big fan of getting them through the season and saying, no, we'll fix it after the season. And, and the higher level you go, um, the, the, the better that's going to work. Um, you know, parents are crazy and they always think that Serena Williams is living in their house and Tiger Woods is living in their house and <laughs> it's just not the way it is. But, but the truth of the matter is if you can get them to rest a little and you brace them, I, I do think that's effective. And then you always have a decision at the end of the season, you know, cause they probably aren't going to re-dislocate wearing that brace. You fix them or do you let them re-dislocate? So good question. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I kind of do the same thing. I mean, especially if it's a you know in-season athlete, unless they just you know have some reason why they don't want to get through it. I mean, most of them want to wait until the end of the season to to, to have surgery. So I, I put them in a brace and and let them play once they have their motion and their their strength back. And I think most of them, you know, they get through the season and then you know then it's sometimes hard. I think once they get through the season to say you know well you probably should have surgery now and and. You know, the college athlete, I think, understands that. I think that the younger athletes have trouble 
sometimes, you know, understanding that maybe this is the right idea, but that's what I do. That's a good point. Listen, you guys, you guys have both been phenomenal and thank you. Um, God, give us your, 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 your closing hey, song. Uh, your I, I, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, you guys uh, knocked it out of the park. I really enjoyed the conversation. A couple of points that I wanted to point out. One, I, I never heard of joint awareness. I always thought that, I, that my, I'm always aware of my joints. Maybe it's because I'm 60, but I always aware of my joints. <laughs> you know? And the other one to you, Kelly, inherently unstable. Hey, you could go a lot of ways in that one. You know? <laughs> Just definitely. People look at me and might, might think that I'm inherently. All right. How I'm do people get for a different reason? Yeah. 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 A positive reason. <laughs> exactly. So how, how does somebody get a hold of you, Kelly? Um, They can reach out at my office at 252-459-5565, or they can find any Cora office down in the Southeast, especially if they search off for Cora Physical Therapy. Oh, look at that, man. That's it. That's a good segue. Dr. Clay, you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, our office number is 252-962-4450. Um, you can also find us on the UNC website, um, and, and that's probably an easier way to do it. But um, either way, that's that's a good way to find me. By the way, I don't know where you're broadcasting from, but that nice warm paneling behind you, it seems like a great is, – is it a pub? It, it's a it's a green screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a green screen. <laughs> I know green screen. That ain't it. <laughs> all right. You guys are all wonderful. Dr. Rick, you knocked it out of the park. All right. Once again, go to corephysicaltherapy.com if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. By the way, I'm out there right now. It's a great website. Treating everyone right. That's what they say. They live by it. Core Physical Therapy. Go out there. Find out more. Again, you guys are absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for being on In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy.